0: You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Husband and wife jo- duo Alan Sparhawk and Mimi Parker have been good enough to swing by Triple R, and they join us today in the studio. Thanks for coming in. Good morning, thank you. Yeah, well, thanks morning. for having us. And so you've just come from um, some shows in New Zealand. How did that all go?
1: It went great, yeah. I mean, the people there are very nice, and it was sort of the kickoff of the tour. You know, the first show was a little delirious from <laughs> jet lag, but uh, no, it was nice. It was good. It's a good place to good place to start, and they're always nice to us.
0: And I've read that on, on some previous tours, you've taken your kids along with you. Have they joined you on this uh, tour?
1: No, not on this trip. Uh, it was a little too far. Yeah, you know, when, it, when they were younger, we brought them with us all the time, uh, but then once they're a little older and with school and whatnot, it was harder to take them out for weeks at a time and we've you know we've we've adjusted our schedule since they're in school more as well. But yeah, they they come with us in the summer. They we, came to China yeah. with us last yeah, year. China that was really and exciting. And
2: Iceland the summer be before. Iceland. So they're not suffering too badly. <laughs> yeah,
0: I was yeah. gonna say I mean do they do they understand just how cool that is?
1: <laughs> I don't I don't know. I mean I uh, I think they do, but you know, obviously it's a different perspective. I mean Mim and I grew up you know, in the middle of the sticks kind of farmers and didn't really didn't really think we'd s- see much whereas they're growing up and you know Hollis climbed the Sograda Familia in Barcelona when she was three so it's it's, it's how do how do you how do you follow up on that you know
3: it's yeah. true I mean travel is something now, yeah. I suppose just for the sort of general population people travel more than they used to especially you know in australia i wonder is that the same in the states do people actually travel a lot I get think, out and about yeah i think they do
2: i mean yeah like my parents our parents that generation didn't really go anywhere my mom took a trip to england i remember when i was in high school and it was a huge deal you know she'd never been anywhere but i yeah i don't know you don't know, know right? it's, it's it's become easy much easier and maybe more affordable
1: yeah, maybe the maybe the younger generation travels more. There's definitely there's definitely like a, kind of a lag there. You know, I think I think America. You know, for one reason or other, I think the, the population doesn't probably doesn't travel as much as. Oh well, other I think people. the majority
2: of the population, but I think more of the population does than didn't used to. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, for sure now, but not, <laughs> nothing compared to. I don't know. We go to every time we meet people in like Europe or. Australia over here and stuff like that it seems like everybody everybody travels they've always they've everybody's at least been somewhere and got, gained a certain a little bit of perspective and I think I don't know I wish there was more of that in America. I think
2: more people need to travel and gain a perspective. I think that's, I think that's
0: very Well, I think, lacking. I mean, cheap, cheap airfares have meant that a lot of people in Australia might choose to go somewhere in Southeast Asia than travel domestically because it can be a cheaper flight in some instances yeah. to do that. Yeah, right.
2: exciting. I think yeah. you guys seem like you're so close to so many exotic places
0: yet so far (laughs) (laughs) and so how do you go touring because you've released uh, 11 studio albums over more than 20 years that you've been playing music together as long as a bunch of EPs collaborations do you sort of like getting out on the road and and playing your music to different audiences
1: yeah I mean I think it may be a little bit old school but I mean we kind of came from came from i don't know if it's a generation thing but it was kind of we came from a time when when you know new music and sort of underground music was it was really about getting out and playing in front of people and and that was the art and you know records sort of over the years kind of came into their own and 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 the underground kind of gained this gained enough resources and the sort of the technology was easy enough then the records kind of became Became more prominent, but yeah, I mean, really, we're coming from playing for people, and, and and that's sort of the real experience. And even when we're writing and recording, sort of in the back of your mind is always like, how to how do would the three of us play this in front of people? And uh, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's you know, it, it's tiring. It's not always great, and 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 you know, especially when you have kids at home and. And when you get older, it's <laughs> there are things about being home that, that uh, are, are quietly more, more enticing. But, um, yeah, playing in front of people is, is, is important to us. And it's, it's sort of the, I mean, without it being too much of an ego thing, I guess it's, it's sort of the reason we do it.
0: And you see that, that response in front of you from, from people as well. I mean, I imagine you, you produce an album, and you put it out into the world, not knowing in some way how it might right. be received, mm-hmm. but, but being on stage, is it, is it gratifying seeing people respond to it in the moment?
2: Yeah, I, yeah, I think I, so, especially with this latest, this latest release. It's really surprising. I see a lot of people singing the new songs, and I find that pretty. anticipate things. Yeah, I, I am enjoying that. It's been that. a few
1: years been a few records since we had kind of that response Mm -hmm. yeah it's been a little bit more of a personal response to this one and yeah I, I don't know it's yeah it's about meeting people and being in the same room you know
0: and, and your latest album, Ones and Sixes, is a fantastic-sounding album, um, a little bit different from, from your previous one, The Invisible Way, which you, you worked with, with Jeff Tweedy on. Did you make a conscious decision to um, have a bit of a different sound with this one and, and work with, with B.J. Burton, who works with Bon, I- bon Iver and, and in his studio? Did you really want to go in a, in a different direction or was it about just experimenting, playing with different people, with different studio and seeing what happened?
1: Um well it's more it's more the the former yeah i mean we i remember when we when we were finishing invisible way we we there was definitely a sense of of feeling like there was a you know sort of a gravitational pull towards the other end of the spectrum something a little more invisible way was maybe a little more comfortable a little more intimate a little more letting the songs just be you know whereas whereas drum uh, one's and sixes is a little more sort of for sure pushing pushing the envelope pushing the sonic palette um i i think what you know what dictates that 99 percent of the time is the songs you know you you write songs and as, as much as you think a person would have control over what they're creating you really don't i mean you 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 write off of fragments and stuff that Sometimes it's based on your subconscious. Sometimes it's very random, and and you put things together. And a lot of times you don't know what you have until it's sort of there in front of you and pointing in the direction it wants to go. So, for sure, after doing Invisible Way, there was the first couple songs we had written. Actually, the the song you played before we started talking, No Comprende, was one of the first songs we wrote, and that that one definitely was a new tone. There's tension. There's dissonance. Mm-hmm. There's there's noise and sort of a this, this pulling at space that that uh, that really pointed pointed the direction of what what we need to do to do next. You know, it, it certainly inspired probably some of the other songs on the record, and, and definitely inspired who you know the choice of who to work with and where.
0: Yeah, it is a a bit of a, a a darker album in some ways I think. Um but one that one that definitely sounds like uh, different thematically I suppose to perhaps the, the, the invisible way which came a couple of years previously. How much uh interactions do you have with, with the producer I mean does it depend on who they are and and their approach or do you look to them to guide you in certain ways? How does how does that collaboration work?
1: Well, it really varies, you know, different people, different times. I mean we we've, we've worked with we've worked with steve albini we've worked with uh dave fridman who does the flaming lips and did, did some of the helped with some of the tame impala records and and uh you know very very different very different skills very different kind of expertise in the way they approach things and and uh i don't know i guess we've always kind of prided ourselves in being able to be flexible with with everybody and sort of find a way that i don't know i think when you hear Over time, you sort of gain a confidence and sort of a sense of like, okay, what are the things that I do need to be in control of? And what are the things that we can let out of our control or or at least place in the hands of someone we trust? Whether it's, you know, I mean, you know, someone like Jeff Tweedy, you know, he was, there was no here, no, do it this way, or maybe you should lengthen this part in this song. There was none of that. It was mostly just, he just had a lot of faith in what we were doing. We, we came in with some strong demos, and he just said, "Let's try to beat the demos, and we'll just make sure you guys get some good takes." And that was that was that record. Um, this this one with B J. Burton, there was definitely a discussion before, like we want to push this. You know, B J. had BJ's done. He's worked on tracks for Kanye West and a lot of other hip hop people, and so so that's that's sort of a direction that, that that was exciting to us. Not not that we were going to do a hip hop record, but mm-hmm. yeah, just the, the sonic parameters that i think some you know that hip-hop definitely has been been pushing the last mm. few years I, I, I think is inspiring and and you know it's 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 sort of every artist's duty to at least come to terms with that and, and decide whether you you're you're going to step up or, or whether you are going to hold on to the blocks that you have you know
0: and and what about april bass uh, studios where justin vernon sort of works out of that's in in wisconsin um i've tried to find some photos online of it because i've heard it's a (laughs) it's a beautiful studio and those that i have found looks like a great place to to produce a record
1: yeah it's real comfortable i mean
2: Mm -hmm. yeah really homey but really they have got some really nice some nice equipment some nice spaces
1: yeah yeah he's he's really done it right he's gathered in some some really good people and and did the research and got a good space and, and just looked at it as as an artist, like how you know what how how would I want this to be, you know? And uh, so that's that's that was cool. Yeah, it's it's good. Plus it. Yeah, like I said, it's only a couple of hours from.
2: Yeah, close to home.
1: <laughs> Get back in time for tea.
2: So we did bring the kids to one of yeah, our sessions. One of our were sessions.
1: Bored out of their. Minds.
2: They were bored out
3: of their minds. Yeah, <laughs> I am. Um, it's funny you say that. I have a friend who's a performer, and and she said, "Oh, can you bring my daughter to a show?" And I I went, and she just sat with my mm-hmm. my phone with her back to the stage <laughs> and <Uh-oh>. read a <laughs> yes, book. Yes. And I was looking, and my friend didn't even think twice about it because she'd she'd seen the rehearsal, like she'd been part of the whole show and she'd probably seen it before as well yeah, but that yeah. she was just like oh yeah whatever <laughs>
2: yeah. Not, they're not impressed, <laughs> not no, impressed yeah. with live <laughs> shows yeah. unless you have a really good uh, rider some good treats and snacks Yeah, that's how you get kids <laughs> excited about going to to rock
3: you know, shows, yeah, the, <laughs> the fringe benefits. I wonder about when you play gigs because the recital hall here. I don't know if you've dropped by or whether you've seen it. It's you know, it's more of a sit-down venue, I suppose. Right. Is that do do you adapt depending on where you're where you're playing? Or?
1: Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah some you know. I mean, when you're in a club, you know, noisy bar, it's, just, it's a little different tone. I, I don't know that we we don't adjust you know we don't say like okay we have to have a completely different set list if it's going to be a bar or a mm-hmm. sit, sit down or whatever but
2: there's definitely a different energy maybe you know compared to the the clubs where they're kind of right in your face
1: mm-hmm.
2: to the Uh-oh. relaxed relaxed sitting yeah, down yeah. but hopefully it will
1: it's a little more under a microscope hopefully people yeah. will loosen up but uh yeah, it's okay. I can see where people would be like, well, if you're going to play for an hour and a half, it'd be nice if I could sit down in a comfy seat. <laughs> 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 but, Trina you know,
2: our comfy
1: that'll, <laughs> that'll turn on you as well, you know, people start falling asleep. And...
0: <laughs> well, I think um, you're playing for a couple of hours tonight, aren't you? Is it an interval? Did I read that
1: right? Are we doing two I sets don't... or was it arranged? Yeah, I can't remember. I know whenever we have... Yeah, it depends. depends we'll on see. the opening yeah, we'll situation. See, yeah, I think there's,
2: there's an opener for sure. But we'll we're flexible. We'll play as long
1: as yeah. We were we just came off a tour recently where we were doing two sets a night, and that's fun. It's nice because you know I mean obviously being around a long time and having fans that have been with us for years is you know a lot of favorite songs. I mean it would be easy if we had like two or three of the hits, but we don't really. It's just everybody has a different favorite mm-hmm. and you do your best you know
0: well it's a fantastic sounding place the recital center shows i've seen that seen that you can just hear every element yeah of, i've of heard the music. that
2: so that's yeah, yeah that's, that's, good. that's that's always
0: nice
1: we have a really good sound man so i'm sure it'll be pretty pretty fun yeah. for him
0: and so, you're playing in Australia, and I think your last show is at Mona in Hobart next, mm-hmm. is it Saturday? Yeah. Saturday, yeah. yeah. Um, which will be a great time as well. It's a beautiful place down there. So, where do you head after that? I saw you've got a, a European tour scheduled for later in the year with PJ Harvey in Istanbul.
2: Yeah, that's... There's
1: a couple of dates with top, her. Yeah,
2: June, we've got a couple of shows with her, and then and a couple of our, of
1: our own. own and, and some more, mm-hmm. yeah, Scandinavia, England, we We kind of, we always kind of gravitate back towards England as sort of the strongest country for us. John Peel was a big supporter of us, and we had a couple weird little breaks and stuff, like our our Christmas record, Mm -hmm. for some reason, was more publicly known there. So, yeah, England's fun, but it, it, it was totally... It's totally because of flukes, I think. <laughs> <ends up> being...
0: <laughs> Not because of the rain, the weather. and
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, don't know. I don't know what they see in us, but it worked out.
0: And you've, um, as far as I know, spent the, most of your life in Duluth. Uh, you've kind of stayed there and you've known each other for a very long Whatever. time. What, yeah. what kind of a, a place is it? I mean, some, some bands move elsewhere and, and maybe follow um, a particular scene. What's mm-hmm. kept you in Duluth?
2: I think Family. You know, we didn't grow up in Duluth. We were we well, yeah. So we've known each other for a long time, and we did kind of grow up together. But we moved to Duluth, and because I have family there, and now Alan has family that's that's moved there. And you know, it's centrally located within the country. It's easy to go east or west, and and kind of we don't really see a reason to that we need to go anywhere yeah. else.
1: When we started, it was you know still it was so underground and just sort of based on going out and playing small clubs it, it just nev- there was never a point where we were like okay we need to move to a big city to sort of pursue and try to compete and mm-hmm. get get a little bit more attention it just sort of we were where we were and people were either I don't know it, it was just it was not as much of a competition band <laughs> where we'd have to go mm-hmm. and try to make it somewhere just, well,
2: and we were so naive we didn't I don't know you
1: know. Yeah, maybe it would have been different if we maybe had moved. Maybe it would have been different,
2: but Chicago at this point I think it's probably allowed us to not not specifically staying in Duluth hasn't allowed us to stay together for as many years as it has but not becoming popular <laughs> <how it>
1: has. <laughs> yeah. We've never been yeah. I think because we never conquered a specific scene or were big in a particular city first it, it, it's sort of just it's not really a factor
0: mm-hmm. yeah I, I mean i guess in your terms yeah, <laughs> would, yeah, would, yeah. would beg to disagree there's a lot of um, massive fans <laughs> of low out there
2: <laughs> well you know and just a relative but not term a,
0: yeah, mm. yeah not enough no, in we're any very, we're city very to, excited that yeah.
2: we have some massive fans that's great yeah
0: we can. We've been very lucky. And you've been so prolific over the 20 years plus that you've been writing music together. Do you, do you still have that inspiration? I mean, are you writing music often when you're at home and, and trying out new things?
1: I, I don't know. Honestly, writing goes in phases, mm-hmm. you know. I can look back and it doesn't seem like we were that prolific or or ambitious, but I think just over time it just adds up. You know, you work on something, you know, in the 90s like indie indie bands were i don't know kind of the kind of the the v- scene we were kind of hanging out with people people put stuff out all the time they put out a record out every year and mm-hmm. you know they do collaboration singles and comps and stuff and it, so it was sort of yeah the first 10 years we really built up a lot of that and and i think by then it just became habit and a little bit of discipline and we definitely have to tell ourselves sometimes like okay I should probably start writing some songs it's been it's been a it's been a year since the record came out or whatever but um i don't know yeah it goes it goes in phases i I don't I, i don't know i i think if you just if you just start working on something you love 20 years later you'll realize that you you ended up getting a lot done you know a lot more than you thought you would Well,
0: the latest album, Ones and Sixes, is um, a fantastic one and it shows that you're still sort of very much at the top of your game.
3: The Grattan Institute's recommending government consider lowering the the income threshold for when higher education students start paying back their HELP loans. Currently, HELP payments are triggered at an annual income of $54,126. But Andrew Norton, the higher education policy director at Grattan, argues this is now too high and should be lowered to around $42,000, allowing the federal government to claw back millions from part-time workers, particularly women, who currently make up the large group of those unlikely to pay back their loans or only likely to pay back a small amount of them, and it's um, uh, an interesting idea. And it's really great to have you on Triple R, Andrew. Um, your report uh, really details this this argument that the current repayment threshold for help loans is too high and should be lowered. Um, maybe tell us why.
4: Well, I think the difficulty is that the the repayment side of the loan scheme is still assuming a full-time worker with a bachelor's degree. And that's not really the population that's now taking out help loans. Uh, there's been the change that you've just spoken about, which is an increasing share of people are working part-time, uh, particularly female graduates. And over the last few years the loan scheme has been extended to people doing vocational education diplomas and I bridge that they just don't earn as much as people with bachelor degrees so this $54,000 in my view is just too high.
3: And it's interesting um, to, to look at the, the repayment thresholds because we're also seeing higher graduate numbers even for bachelor degrees and poor employment prospects for those graduates as well in the first years after they finish their degrees. So. lowering that threshold would also um, see those students start paying back at a lower rate?
4: Yes. At the moment, uh, the threshold has been going up relatively quickly because it's indexed to average weekly earnings. And that means over time it's increased by a lot more than inflation and it's increased by more than the starting salaries that new graduates get. So over the years, fewer people who do actually have a full-time job after completing uni are earning enough to repay.
0: And you mentioned, Andrew, that, uh, that part of the, the reason for the, the blowout in government debt um, with rising student numbers in tertiary education has also been the expansion of help to the vocational sector. Is that one, uh, I suppose, development that, that has really contributed to this ballooning debt?
4: Uh, It's certainly one of the big drivers. So uh, last year about $8 billion was lent to to students and probably about two and a half of that was to diploma students. Now the vocational side has been a a public policy disaster. There's been lots of malpractice in the vocational education industry. Uh, Completion rates of about 20%. 20%. Now, the government is working to clear that up, but you know, our analysis says that even without this corruption in the industry, there's still a big problem with the, the earnings of people with diploma qualifications.
3: And I think before we start talking about you know, other possible ways forward, I suppose, rather than um, lowering the threshold, I'd like to sort of hear your views on the, the spirit of help of the, the higher education loans to students, because my understanding was that it's, um, it's a way of reducing the risk of students, that that we want um, young people to go ahead and and educate themselves and that they then start to pay the loans back to government when they start to earn and get the benefit of that education. Is this still the sort of the spirit of of what HELP is there to do?
4: Um, I think that's an excellent question because certainly people believe that you should get a financial benefit before you repay your HELP debt. Um, That's never quite been official policy, but it's widely believed, and what our report does is argue that really that is not a defensible argument, that people will be encouraged to do this, to take higher education and tertiary education now more broadly without such a generous threshold. And when thinking about this, this is really a significant financial benefit paid for by government to have a high threshold, and we think it should be more in line with other government benefits, such as or government protection schemes like minimum wage or social security or or, or benefits like those.
3: And it's interesting too. Like I hadn't seen help loans compared with with um, welfare benefits like New Start and other kind of concessions before. Is this a new way of thinking about help? Because again, uh, it's there i thought to to reduce the risk for young people entering education and to encourage people to become educated but they they don't actually get the money it's not like a welfare payment where they get it in their pocket they're deferring no. payment of it so it's it's quite different but are you seeing that they're more similar now as a, as a wealth transfer or
4: yeah it is a different mechanism but we think in principle it's more similar i think what our report is doing is just trying to rethink the loan scheme from first principles rather than just all these changes that have built up over long periods of time. In some cases, for example, the the financial benefit idea goes way back to when this was started in the late 1980s. And I think at the time, it was primarily a political judgment. The Labor government at the time was trying to end free higher education, and this was a concession they made. And they probably didn't realise it was going to be as expensive as it actually turned out to be. So if they'd known they could look in a crystal ball 25 years in the future, they probably wouldn't have had such a generous idea.
0: And in your report, Andrew, you compare Australia's help regime with uh, those in both England and New Zealand primarily. Um, I mean, we're hearing here in Australia that the cost of living are increasing, housing affordability is becoming more of an issue, particularly for for young people. Uh, We've got low wage growth at the moment, which is apparently the lower since around 1990. Can we be sure that people earning around about $42,000 forty two thousand dollars a year can afford to start paying off their help debts?
4: Uh, we're not pretending that $42,000 is a lot of money, particularly if you're living in expensive cities like Melbourne or Sydney. Uh, but the report does argue that it's a relatively small number of people who are simply reliant on that $42,000 that we actually looked at them. About half of the, the people affected have partners, and often the reason they're not earning a large sum is that they're the second income earner in the household. So about 40% of the, the group we're talking about have household incomes, disposable incomes, over 80000 a year. And so this is one of the arguments of the report, that even though this is an expensive scheme, uh, many of the families benefiting from it aren't poor by normal standards and certainly are are not $42,000 a year type poor.
3: It's interesting. I mean, that whole um, aspect of uh, your report, and I should um, remind listeners, we're speaking with Andrew Norton. He's with the Grattan Institute. It's a a think tank that really puts its mind to trying to solve these kind of big policy problems in Australia. And in this instance, Andrew's looked at how we can... ..or how government can reclaim more of the help loans uh, that students are taking out for tertiary study. And um, we um andrew we we sort of look at um you know how much women earn um over their lifetime and i think in that in your report there's a really stark graph there that show that women one never earn as much as men and two their peak earnings really are in their late 20s early 30s and then it goes down from there as many women take part-time work um so as you say women may be the part-time worker in the household with caring duties or 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 the like um they have a partner or family income that is higher than that. But we don't have a tradition of debt being incurred by partners, do we? That, that these are very individual, the debts that we, we take out for, um, for help and other sort of personal education loans.
4: They are... Individual, and I guess that's one of the complications of the way the system works. That because it is individual, a lot of the benefits go to high income households. And the report does discuss the idea of whether help repayment should be based on family income instead. And if that was the case, you could actually get away with a higher threshold because more people would still repay because there'd be two incomes rather than just one income counted. But we decided that was probably too hard because there are basic questions like, you know, when is a family relationship formed? And we looked at the census and about half of 20-something people who are in living relationships aren't married. That's exactly the population likely to have a help debt. How do you determine when they're liable for each other's loans? That's a really hard practical question.
3: Yeah, and it's a, a complex, and I suppose I don't want to go down the sort of Warren too much of the complexity of this, but um, one thing that people will be really clearly aware of, once they hit $54,125 at the moment as um, annual income, they will fall off the cliff of loans. You start paying back at 4%, and you're, you're wanting also to look at that, that we smooth out the sort of um, the, the percentage of our annual income that we pay once we start to hit the sort of $42,000 threshold. Maybe explain that a little
4: Yes. Yeah, so the the difficulty with Help's repayment system is that if you earn one dollar less than the current threshold, you pay nothing at all. If you earn the threshold, you pay a bit over two thousand dollars a year. So people actually manipulate their income to stay just below the threshold because of the extra cost. Because you can actually end up taking home less pay for getting more money, which doesn't seem to make sense. Um, at the forty-two thousand, we're suggesting three percent, where you pay about twelve hundred dollars. So. There still is a disincentive to crossing the threshold, but it's a less dramatic one than it is at the the current uh, $54,000, 4% of all income repayment.
0: And we've seen some response so far from the government to your report that they're reportedly uh, considering uh, your proposals. We've also heard that Labor and the Greens have have rejected the recommendations. Um, If we sort of can ask you to look into your crystal ball for a second, Andrew, do you see this as being uh, a large, a considerable election issue. Uh, We're going to have an election sometime this year. And the previous uh, fee deregulation that the government had proposed has kind of been shelved. So we're in a bit of a a holding pattern. Do you see this being a big election battleground?
4: I think Labor does want higher education to be a big election issue. We're still hearing a lot about $100,000 degrees from Labor. Uh, Traditionally, higher education has not been a major election issue, but I think Labor's going to try and make it one.
3: And what do you think might happen
4: uh, very good question. Um, <laughs> at the moment, the Liberals don't really have a higher education policy after the Chris Pine policy was dumped. So part of what determines this is you know, how electorally sensitive they are and whether they try and minimise higher education as an issue for the election.
3: And it is, like you say, it's not, it's not something that affects everybody, higher education loans and the way that we repay them, but it does affect quite a large number of people. And, and with your particular proposal, the impact is likely to be highest on, on women. And, you know, we know a longstanding pay gap between men and women um, for, you know, women doing the same job as a man and, and so forth. And that's been, you know, throughout our history here. Is... Could we be looking at ways to change that rather than clawing debt back at a lower rate? Or do you think that the, the dropping of the threshold is the way forward to try and reclaim some of the, the, the loans that students have taken out for um, their higher education?
4: I think it is the most practical way. and We also have to remember that you know one of the reasons that women have most of the debt is that they're nearly 60% of all the students. So you know, women are also the main beneficiaries of the current higher education system. And as indicated earlier, even though women are technically liable to repay, often it's going to affect their household, which obviously involves uh, partners and children as well.
3: Is this sort of logical extension that we're spending too much money on women's education, Andrew, when we start to look at these kinds of issues? Is this, is this underlying in your report or is it something that I'm, I'm reading into it?
4: I think that's a too bold a claim about it. So a lot, a lot of people are actually advancing their incomes and some of the benefits come through higher part-time income than they would otherwise get. So they are better off. Uh, but just the nature of Australian family relationships is meaning that uh, women are less likely to repay than men. I should add, the vast majority of women do in fact repay. It's just that they're overrepresented among those who don't.
3: Yeah, that's interesting too. And I also, when thinking about that sort of um, question um, that, you know, are we getting sort of broader societal benefits, you think, from having women with higher education levels at, in parenting roles and, and in carer roles, do you think? Is that a benefit that we might be able to, to see play out over the generations, even though women aren't always paying back their, their help debts?
4: Yeah, and I'm not necessarily saying this part-time work is an inherent problem overall for looking at it from a whole social perspective, but it can be an issue for the loan scheme. But as I said, like, we probably think that around 30% of women who borrow, <coughs> excuse me, are at some risk of not fully repaying. So it's a large minority, but obviously the majority do repay.
0: And one other reform that, that's kind of a part of this broad package, I guess, is the, the idea of recouping help debts from deceased estates. It's currently that the government's reportedly considering, and um, currently, the, the debt is white when someone passes away. Um, I understand, Andrew, you sort of broadly support this. Is, is that the case?
4: Yeah, that actually came from a report we did two years ago, and it's, it's based on very similar analysis to this, which is that a lot of the debt will be held by usually the female partner in a high-income household. And so when they eventually pass away, often they will have significant assets such as the family home, and that would enable repayment.
3: Yeah, it's interesting, and it's and it's um a big idea, and uh, and I, I urge people to have a look and and read with interest what Andrew's putting forward, and uh, and I suppose we'll wait for the election and for the budget. You think, Andrew, to start to get some some um, answers on whether the government might take some of these ideas up?
4: Yep, I think third of May is the big date to find out.
3: Thanks so much for being with us on Triple R. Thank you very much. Thanks, Andrew Norton. He's a uh, Grattan Institute Higher Education Program Director and um, they, he's come out with you know quite a number of ideas for how we can reform higher education and the way we pay for it. And uh, we didn't speak about it in that interview, but I should say that um, this is one idea that he has for how uh, we could protect universities also from... Um, Having a cut in funding for research and for teaching, so looking at student uh, loan repayments is is one uh, way forward. The Victoria Supreme Court is celebrating a significant anniversary, 175 years. The court is our highest in the state and was established in 1852 to quote safeguard and maintain the rule of law and to ensure equal justice for all. Jo- um, uh, Joanne Boyd is archives and records manager at the court, and she's got the mission of talking to us all about the history of of the court and uh joanne we've already started talking off air we're laughing at the i'm not laughing but reminiscing about the great flood here at triple r and um the court's history had a bit of flooding as well, I understand. Oh,
5: in recent years, we've had some floods, yes, although there must have been some old ones. The buildings have always seemed to have leaked at different times. But, yes, the great hailstorm of 2010, the ceiling collapsed just after we'd had all the renovations finished and the plasterwork came down. And then I've had two floods in the basement where I look after the records which had one of my colleagues sort of swimming through it. It was up to his knees. That took a while. With it. A lot of work involved in sorting those bullets out and I don't look forward to it. Now we don't keep the records in the basement anymore.
0: Well, it's, it's a learning curve, isn't it? Because um, we here, our office was mainly the thing that was sort of hit worst yeah. by our great flood of 2016 um, <laughs> and, and it, you know, it, it's kind of a wake-up call to think, alright, where should we actually keep our records and our historical documents that we, we want to retain forever?
5: Yeah, and that, that's in one of the important parts of my job is to try and think of a ways to make sure that our records are kept permanently. When I first started work at the court, there was some, which was eight years ago now, there was a little bit of a problem. I went into one of the basements and they had what we call the lunatic records. And they were the, there was a, a job called the Master in Lunacy. Um, and it was from the Lunacy Act of 1863. And we used to look after in the court people's um, uh, estates when they'd gone into the asylums and things, so that was good. But the the records were like mouldy, like black. It, they stunk to high heaven. But they were really very valuable records. So I had them properly conserved and everything like that. And they're now in the Public Records Office, as indeed most of our records are in the Public Records Office. Um, And so people can go and look at them. One of the big ones we've got, we've got a complete set of what we call the probate records, which is from the earliest days, which is what this 175th anniversary is, 1841, right through. And they're also online. So if you've got a 19th century Melbourne ancestor, you can look them up. And if you think they've got an estate, you can go and look them up. So they're just amazing. They're, you know, and they're giving... um, Wills, I think, are one of the more interesting things we still do. So, 175 years of doing wills. One of the first wills that was really contentious was John Batman's will, for all sorts of reasons. Um, but he sort of he died of syphilis. For those of you who don't know, I think his face was literally falling off. Anyways, poor old John Batman. Um, But he had written a will just before his death when he seemed to still own what he thought was half of Melbourne. Of course, because of his illness and that he didn't own any of that stuff and there was this huge ruckus about the will and Lonsdale and yes it really was Captain Lonsdale who was the first magistrate he'd been sort of an executor of the will and we still deal with those great will issues even today with families arguing and about sometimes not a lot of money sometimes quite a big estate it's still one of our core business
3: and who knew I didn't know that that was a a core business of the Supreme Court and I wonder if it's a good time to talk about the role and the powers of the court because it it's very. It does a lot of things. Well, we do do a lot of things. So everybody, the thing that everybody relates to or
5: understands is our criminal cases, but we only do about 170 or something like of those every year. Um, and for us, they're the most serious cases. They're the murder cases, maybe large drug importations, terrorism cases. So, and that's what catches people's imagination, so that they see on the tally um, the uh, van coming in and the in the laneway there and the, the prisoners. Uh, the accused, sorry, going into the courtroom and everything like that. That's our most high-profile stuff. When I talk about the history of the court, that's the thing that people kind of almost relate to. So, of course, Ned Kelly is one of ours. Um, the Eureka tiles is one of ours. Deeming the serial killer from the 1890s is one of ours. Um, of course, one of the things, like, we were thinking about also... Um, thinking about next year, Ronald Ryan. It's 50 years next year since he was executed. So one of the features... So we've got an exhibition on in the library for the marking the 175 years and everybody's welcome to come into the library um, during business hours and we'll be open during Law Week and Open House in July, so please come and have a look. But one of the things that people are really interested in, like... It's macabre in its own way, is what's called the execution cap. So that when the judges were um, sentencing someone to death, they put on, on, so they had their wig on, and then on top of the wig, they put on a little black square of um, cloth, and they, you know, Lord have mercy upon your soul, and things like that. We think uh, they stopped using that mainly in the 20th century, although people could, of course, be still sentenced to death. But we, but we've got that cloth on display on top of a little wig, so people are welcome to come and have a look at that. So the capital punishment part is a really problematic about our history. I mean, one of the worst and saddest things, I always think, is that the very first um, executions, the first ones... Sorry. Of course, we had our bush rangers and everything like that, but the first ones are actually two Indigenous men from Van Diemen's land who'd been brought over with good old Robinson, and they'd been promised a better life in the Victorian colony. That didn't happen, funnily enough. And they ended up um, roaming around the Mornington Peninsula, what's now the Mornington Peninsula. They um, stole some cattle. They might have killed someone in the course of that. So they brought back to Melbourne and tried and sentenced to death. It was highly controversial. It was one of the last public executions as well. Um, It was up near what we call the Old Melbourne Jail. So the Old Melbourne Jail is exactly what it says it is, it's the old Melbourne and it comes, it's been there since the 1830s, 1840s as well but next door to that what you see is the magistrate, the old magistrates court, part of RMIT but that actually is only 100 years old that building that was built in earlier 20th century. We used to be there so our first building, purpose built building in the courthouse from 1841 through to the 1880s was in on that site there and that's where all those other cases were heard and things like that. The big building the big building the trial building the 1880s building that was built between 1874 and opened for business in 1884 and we've been there ever since which is hence why you can get problems when it floods and <laughs> things like that but it means we've got all sorts of little nooks and crannies and I've got all sorts of things that I put on display I said majority of it's the records is at the public records office but little things like now let me think Well, someone found... I really liked it. It was a year planner from 1941. I'm thinking, yeah, that's useful. And then we found other little odd things. One of the key bits we've got on show is actually the court book with the Kelly verdict in. But I've got other little things, you know, like I've got an old bottles and cigarette packets and a slingshot and uh, all sorts of odd things that have turned up. Actually, what we have got... Do you know about the folks' this superstition about them putting boots and things in chimneys and rooftops? No. no. Ceilings? <laughs> Do tell. Okay. So there's a folk belief. It's an English folk belief that you, when you're constructing a new house, sometimes it's a dead cat. We won't go to the dead cat. We haven't found a dead cat, but we have found some old shoes and boots underneath things. But so, oh, the workers left them behind. But no, there's a folk tradition amongst building trade. There's, I think some of it is meant to be that the. Um, so the bad things should go into the boot as such, but it's a, it's a folk memory about, it. and so sometimes you'll find them in wall cavities, underneath houses, and sometimes in the roof, in
0: the ceiling cavities as well. Amazing. <laughs> um, and when the the Supreme Court. Victoria was established in the 1841. I mean, that period shortly after then, I imagine there would have been a huge influx of people into Victoria on account of the gold rush. Did, did that make it a particularly busy time for the court with with so many more people looking yeah, for their yeah, riches?
5: Yeah, so that aiding. 1840s uh, is quite, and then we become a separate colony, as you know, in 1851. Gold's found more or less exactly the same time, and it really takes off at that point. So originally there was just the resident judge in the 1840s, then we had three judges in the 1850s. And that wasn't enough. We went up to about five judges. One of the judges, uh, Justice Molesworth, became the judge of the Court of Mines. And mm-hmm. the Court of Mines is about, of course, the fact that Eureka happened. But company law and about the ability to raise a large amount of cash to do the gold mining, that comes out of that sort of thing. And he was also adjudicating on who had the right to what you found and how, all of those sort of issues about gold mining and things like that. So the gold mining um, was a huge issue for us. But like I was talking about before, the lunacy stuff. So we still do what... Um, there's a section of the office called Funds in Court of the court called funds in court and that's so if you had a large payment due to a damages so we still do damages and things then they will help in some cases if you're unable to do so yourself administer that amount of money and things and so that's another important part of our um, sort of brief about what we do so then the other thing of course was divorce Um, we have um, very early divorce laws so and that was from the 1840 uh, the 1860s one of the other things i want to talk about too is juries um so one of the things when i first started working at the court i think where's all the women and there wasn't a lot of women you don't find it and even in juries women weren't on the juries until the 1960s people less than only 50 years ago um up to that point it was always male jury Mm. juries
3: and I, I think we've also seen some change, but quite late in the piece, to see Supreme Court judges being women as well.
5: That's right. Well, Justice Barmford, um, Rosemary Barmford, wasn't appointed until 1996. So that's, um, and so it's 20 years this year, which is great. And of course, the Chief Justice, Marilyn Warren, is the first female Chief Justice, and she was appointed in 2003. And I
0: couldn't believe that was so recent. <laughs> well,
5: it's, 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 it's amazing to th- well, there's a story that when Justice Barnford turned up, she said um, there is, of course, judicial toilets, and but there was no judicial female judicial toilets, so they had to designate a toilet for the female judicial officers as well. So it took a long time for those things to happen, and it, it's, it was when... I'm thinking about the history. Sometimes it seems so male orientated. I mean, one of the reasons they said they couldn't have women on the jury was that they couldn't accommodate mixed gender juries if they had to be sequestered overnight. So that's changed a lot as well.
3: Yeah, and I, I think I mean, have have those changes also mirrored other changes to the court, or are they very much? Is the Supreme Court very much operating as it as it has for a long time?
5: No, and and it is different. I mean, there's for one thing there's a lot more judges (laughs) so we built up slowly through the 20th century and there's now nearly 40 judges um and we have a court of appeal which is takes up about 12 of them there's the court is actually aiming for an equal gender balance of judges a 50 50 gender balance and it's slowly but surely getting there um which will probably be get there ahead of parliament i think um and so But the way we do things is quite different. So e-filing exists now. You lodge things electronically. My favourite story is that if you were um, a registry clerk in the 1860s, you could have been dropped down in the 1960s and you still would have been dealing with big ledgers and everything written out in hand and everything like that. We did have typewriters by then, but it took a while. I mean, it's funny, I've been looking at 1990 red records and everybody loved the fax machine but the problem with the fax machine stuff was that's that heat fax machine and as you, everybody knows that's now going black and disappearing so there's all this ri- writing over them but we
0: don't know what the actual thing's about anymore because it's disappeared, it's faded into time It struck me when um, when thinking about the 175th anniversary of the Supreme Court that you know, so many seminal things happen within those walls and have happened mm-hmm. over history, it's probably been the site of some of the, um, the most famous stories throughout Australia's Um, more recent history Um, but i was reading uh, a quote from victoria university legal professor and historian dr simon smith who was saying that victoria's legal history is comparatively underdone that we don't really haven't really told that story as well as we could have
5: no and i think i think it's a real shame and i find that these characters are so interesting when i'm dealing with them and it's been there's some biographies of the um chief justices of the 19th century but there's not one of all of the chief justices of the 20th century now i know that they're boring white males up to a certain point but they're really interesting characters in their own right um there's like um there's a really interesting gideon haig talks about his book called the racket which is about the menhenit ruling and the menhenit ruling was the thing that made abortion legal in this State, and that's as recent as 1969. So um, Justice Manhennan said, "Look, I think that under certain circumstances, women should be permitted to have abortions," and so that became the basis for for uh, abortion, the legal abortion. All right, Gideon Hague says that actually the, his book, The Racket, he says is based. Um, he said it's the one he's most proud of, but the one he thinks it's probably the least read, but it probably should be. And he's written some more. One of the interesting um, in This House of Grief, which is about the Farquharson trial and the... um murder of the young boys in the dam she actually dedicates that to the supreme court and i think she's in her way she's starting to tell those stories i think so it's easy to see the criminal stuff but there's lots and lots of stories to be told
3: yeah and i think um i mean one thing about courts is that we have a lot of them like supreme court is is you know our 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 highest court here in victoria i think cases can only be appealed to the high court of australia is that how it works how does the supreme court work in with the other courts that we have in in victoria Well, the the bulk um, happens, of course, at VCAT and at um, what I
5: call the Magi's Court, Magistrate's Court. So um, I always say to people, well, we might deal with like 175 serious criminal matters in the court. I mean, we have more files, but that's any year that that's many trials that take place. But... Um, the VCAT list for the residential tenancy stuff there's 60,000 applications for that every year so that's a huge number one of our busiest things which I was talking about before is probate because well people die so there's 20,000 for that so um, but you get so much more so it's volume in what we call the lower courts and then it gets more rarefied as you go up and there's about money and everything like that what we hear
3: Fascinating. Well, you can find out more um, about the Supreme Court of Victoria and its um, its significant anniversary, one hundred and seventy five years this year. Uh, and the court is our highest in the state. And Joanne Boyd has been telling us about it. Archives and Records Manager over there. And I, I, I realised I wanted to ask one more question: is sure. what What about the future of the court? Like, can, what's going to What's going to happen? Is it going to change more? Or,
5: well, I think. Uh, it was interesting, probably everybody noticed in the paper at the weekend that the Chief Justice said we probably won't be wearing wigs anymore. So I know that seems pretty small beer, but it's a big change. Um, there is... I mean, we, still, we do a lot by video now, like I said, the e-filing and everything like that. But still, in the end, that public thing of someone coming in... There's, there's, trial by jury is such an important thing in a criminal matter. So I think that will continue to happen. I think juries will continue to exist in this state. There is talk, there's been lots of talk about should we get a new building because we're sitting in a 19th century building dispensing 21st century justice and that's, it's, a, it's a real tension about how we manage that and what we're doing. Whether we ever get a new building is up to the love of the gods, but that is an issue for us as well.
3: Well, no meets Um, I suppose if you're of the people then not having one of those (laughs) curly things on your head (laughs) Um, makes sense thanks so much for coming in Joanne Boyd um, from the Supreme Court of Victoria the Archives and Records Manager
0: You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best known community radio station 3RRR 102.7 in Melbourne For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream please visit our website at rrr.org.au